0: I'd like to invite you to turn with me to our text for this morning, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Matthew 25, or sorry, 5, verses 23 through 24. And this is uh, Jesus speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples. And we're continuing a sermon series looking at generosity here at Ivan Rest Church. And this morning we get to hear directly the words of Jesus on that topic. So Matthew 5, verses 23 through 24, and this is what it says. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, when you start a new dating relationship, it's not just the person you're dating that you have to impress. It's also all their friends and family members. I know this from personal experience, because not long after Sarah and I started dating, her two best friends came to visit her in Milwaukee, where we lived at the time. And as part of their visit, they wanted to meet this guy that Sarah had been seeing, so we all got lunch together. Uh, As I found out later, though, it wasn't just a friendly get-together with Sarah's friends. Instead, I was being vetted. Um, Apparently, I passed the test, though. Either that or the 20 bucks I slipped, each of them worked. But that's how relationships work, right? Whether it's a friendship, a family relationship, a work relationship, or a romantic one, often our relationships with other people aren't isolated to our relationship with just that person. Instead, there are other people involved, too. And as Christians, that's true not only of our relationships with other human beings, but it's also true of our relationship with God. And that's part of what Jesus is saying here in our text for this morning. In essence, he's saying that our relationships with other people have an effect on our relationship with God. They're connected. They're intertwined. How we relate to others affects how we relate to God as well. And in order to illustrate that, Jesus uses an example here that gets right at the heart of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in this sermon series. He uses an example about generosity. You see, generosity, at least in the Christian understanding, is one part of of the fabric of the Christian life. And because of that, it's not something that we can practice in isolation from all the other parts of the Christian life. Instead, our generosity, at least as Christians, has to fit with and relate to every other aspect of our faith as well. That's what Jesus is saying here, and so that's what we're gonna talk about this morning and the next week as well. And in order to to get into that, I think we need to understand a a bit of the context of this passage. And uh, to be honest, there's a lot uh, here. I mean, it's a Sermon on the Mount, so I'm not going to go super deep into this. This is why you should start coming back uh, starting next week for Sunday nights. Um, But there's at least a couple of things that we need to quickly touch on in order to understand what's going on here in Matthew chapter (coughs) 5. First, this uh, passage, like I said, is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. In the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is really doing is he's laying out for us what it looks like to be citizens or members of God's kingdom. And as part of that, one of the things that he does is he sketches out what our relationship should look like with other human beings. And that's what our text this morning is getting at, too. Specifically, these verses are part of of a, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about anger and how it affects our relationships with others, and in a nutshell, what Jesus says here is that as Christians, we can't be people who let our anger determine what our relationship with others looks like. We might be angry with someone or they might be angry with us, but eventually we have to work to resolve that anger, to not do that, to be angry with somebody in an ongoing, enduring, resentful way, says Jesus, is really the same thing as committing murder against them. And that's because, as Jesus points out, that's actually where murder starts. It starts with anger in our hearts that when left unresolved, festers, grows, and eventually can spiral into violence as well. And so in response to that, Jesus gives two examples here of a better way of relating to others. And these specific verses that we're looking at this morning are the first of those two examples. As we just read, Jesus tells his listeners here, if you are offering your gift at the altar, at the temple in Jerusalem, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your gift. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that there is no higher priority than making sure our relationships with others are reconciled. And so it's a radically different way of relating to people um, as sinful human beings, especially when there are difficulties in our relationships with them. And yet according to Jesus, this is what the Christian way looks like. It's a way of life and faith that prioritizes reconciliation with others in our relationships with them. Now truth be told, The situation that Jesus sketches out here is actually pretty comical. You see, Jesus gave his sermon on the mount uh, up in Galilee on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, um, which is pretty much the northern region of Israel's historical territory. It's about as far north as you can get and still consider yourself to be an Israelite. And so his listeners were way up there in the north part of the country, those who were hearing this. What that means, though, is that this situation that Jesus is sketching out for them is borderline ridiculous. Because for them to go and worship at the altar, Jesus is referring to the temple in Jerusalem, would have been about a three or so day journey. It wasn't just a quick, easy journey up from the north in Galilee down to the middle of the country in Jerusalem. It took a couple of days. Like I said, about three. And so what that means is that for them to go to Jerusalem and worship there at the temple And offer a sacrifice on the altar was no small task. It wouldn't have been a quick, easy trip. They would have had to make arrangements. It would have been a road trip, more or less, where they would have had to spend quite a bit of time getting there and back. And so when you think about it like that, what Jesus proposes here doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You see, Jesus imagines someone from Galilee taking that journey. They go to Jerusalem. They're headed to the temple to worship. And so they take the three or so days that it would have taken them to get there. They finally arrive there in Jerusalem, they head to the temple, they go to the marketplace that was right there in the temple courts in order to find an animal or something that they could offer as a sacrifice on the altar. They start talking to the seller, They, they negotiate, haggle a little bit, they finally agree on a price, they pay for it, and then they lead that animal towards the altar. They go through whatever procedures and protocols there would have been for them to enter the inner court where the priests were and bring that sacrifice to the altar. And it's right then, At that moment, Jesus imagines that they suddenly remember that somebody has something against them. Not they have something against someone, but someone has something against them. Leave your gift there in front of the altar, Jesus says. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. In other words, what Jesus is telling his listeners here is leave that animal there at the altar. Quickly make your way out of the temple court, saddle your donkey, hurry the three or so days it's going to take you to get back to Galilee. Once you're there, go to the house of the person who's angry with you, apologize to them, repent, reconcile with them, then quick jump back on your donkey, hurry the three or so days it takes to get back to Jerusalem. Go to the temple courts, find your animal, which is still standing there waiting for you a week later at the altar and complete your sacrifice to God. See how ridiculous that is? It'd be like this morning if when the Cunnins came up for baptism, Matt were to suddenly remember that somebody has something against him, which if you know Matt, is not at all hard to imagine. Okay? Just wait, it'll get better. What Jesus is saying here is that he would have to quick leave, go and spend a week making things right, or in Matt's case, two or three weeks, maybe even four, um, and then come back and find Amber and the boys still standing here waiting to complete the baptism. And then we'd finally be, uh, be able to do it. That's what Jesus is proposing here. That's what he's saying. And there's no way that somebody would have been able to do that. First of all, you couldn't just leave an offering sitting there at the altar in the temple courts. Even if it was a grain offering, you couldn't do that. But imagine leaving a live animal just standing there, waiting at the altar for you. I mean, it wouldn't work. And then there's the time commitment, right? I mean, Jesus is proposing taking a week just to hurry back to Galilee, make some amends, and then hurry back to Jerusalem. Doesn't make any sense. But Jesus understands that. That's because, like he does with his instructions just a few verses before this to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand if it causes you to sin, Jesus is intentionally exaggerating and using hyperbole here. He isn't telling us that this is literally what we need to do. Instead, he's trying to make a point. And that point is this. God takes our relationships with others seriously. How we relate to our fellow human beings has an impact on how we relate to To God. And we cannot think that we can relate to God or approach Him in worship, have our good deeds recognized, or have our generosity towards Him accepted if we're not living out our faith in our relationships with others as well. To put it another way, God's acceptance of our generosity as Christians, our giving here at church, our generosity towards other Christian causes, is at least to a degree dependent on how we're living in other areas of our faith as well if we are not the kind, humble, patient, repentant reconcilers that Jesus calls us to be in our relationships with one another here, then we cannot consider ourselves generous towards God either, regardless of how much we might give or how often we do it. There's a connection between those things. And so again, generosity is one part of the fabric of the Christian life. It's an important part. But what Jesus is saying here is that if the other parts of our lives as Christians are not what they should be, then we cannot consider our generosity towards God what it should be either. Simply being generous with our offerings, with what we give to God, with our money, does not, paper us, does not paper over us not living Christianly in other areas of life. Instead, those things are connected. And I say that because I think sometimes we do sort of think that generosity can paper over other shortcomings, yeah, you see, this passage actually reminds me of something I hear a lot from doubters and skeptics. Uh, as a pastor, I tend to have a lot of evangelistic conversations. That's because it's kind of easy as a pastor. Right? It's not that hard for me to bring up my faith in conversations with others because the second anyone asks me what I do for a living, if they're, if they're not a believer, boom, we're doing evangelism. right? Either that or they run in the opposite direction and they don't want to talk to me. I can't tell you how many times I've been on flights where you, know, you have that question right? and uh, somebody goes, hey, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a pastor. And I know in a split second whether I'm going to spend the rest of that flight talking with them or if I'm gonna spend the rest of that flight reading my book because they are already desperately trying to get into their bag to get their headphones out so that they don't have to talk to me anymore, okay? And in those conversations, one of the things that I hear time and time again for why certain people don't believe in God, why they're not religious, and why they don't see a need for God in their lives is because they think that they're actually doing pretty well without him. You know, they'll say things like, I don't really see a need for religion. I try to be a good person on my own. I try to do the right things. I try to avoid the wrong ones. And I think that if I were to die today, God would accept that. He would accept me. And then, it kind of happens every time. They'll sort of tack on this additional line at the end of that. After all, they say, you know, it's not like I've killed anyone or anything. You ever hear anyone say that? It's not like I killed anyone or anything. Um, I always kind of internally, I don't do it externally so that they can see it, but I always sort of internally roll my eyes at that, right? Because apart from that being a total misunderstanding of the Christian faith, that it's all just about being a good person, which it completely ignores grace and the gospel and everything else that we believe, right? That also sets the bar, I mean, if you think about it, it sets the bar really, really low for what it means to be a good person, right? I mean, if the bar for being a good person is just not killing people, i got to think most of us are going to clear that, right? You know, most people do. Which is actually, of course, the point. You see, when it comes to our definitions for what a good person is, it's human nature to put the bar somewhere where we know we can clear it. I mean, I... I have yet to meet somebody who puts that bar someplace where they themselves can't get over it. In fact, I've been involved with various uh, prison ministries over the years, and so uh, as part of that, I have met people who have actually killed other people, and even they do this. Okay? I was talking to a prisoner one time um, at one of the prisons I visited, and uh, he said something to the effect of, well, I have killed someone, but, you know, I didn't do it like that guy over there. I mean... (laughs) At least I'm not like him. He's a really bad guy. We always put the bar someplace where we ourselves can get over it and qualify ourselves as good people. But you know what? It's not just murder that we do that with. I think we kind of do it with generosity, too. At least I hear this sort of thing in the church. You know, we'll say things like, yeah, I know I'm not on good terms with my parents, and I gossip more than I should, and I deal with lust. And I say things about people on social media that I would never say in real life, in person, to their face. But I'm still a good Christian. I mean, I pray at meals. I show up to church a a couple times a month, and I always give. In fact, I've got it set up so that it's an automatic recurring monthly draw from my bank account, so that even when I can't make it to church, I'm still giving to God. And you know, I think God will accept that. But Jesus here is saying no. He doesn't. As Christians, our generosity towards God does not paper over deficiencies in other areas of our lives as Christians. Our relationship with God is not transactional. In fact, in this day and age, it's maybe one of the few relationships that isn't transactional. We can't just throw money at God in the expectation that it'll make our relationship with him good, even if our other relationships aren't. And Jesus is deadly serious about that here. Leave your gift at the altar, he says. Don't bother coming. It's not going to be accepted. Go and get the other stuff figured out first, then come and offer your gift. And I want to be clear here. I mean, there's grace here still, right, as Christians, and we'll get to that in a bit. But the point I'm trying to make is that we need to see our faith as Christians as a collective whole, What I mean by that is that it's not a compartmentalized assortment of unrelated things where we can say, you know what, I'm really going to focus on this one area, generosity, and get really good at that, but I'm kind of going to let the other stuff slide. That's not how it works. Again, like I said, our generosity as Christians is one part of the fabric of our lives as believers. And so it needs to be woven together. Excellence in one area, like generosity, doesn't make up for shortcomings in other areas. That's Jesus' point. Just because we're generous, and we show up with our offerings each Sunday, and we're willing to give to God, doesn't mean that the other parts of our lives don't matter. Because what Jesus is telling us here is that they do. And to illustrate that, I'd like to share something from a conversation I had a few months ago. Basically, a while back, I decided to start to get together with some of the other pastors here in the Granville area because I figured I'm the new kid on the block. Um, So it would be good just to connect with them, uh, pick their brains on what it's like to serve here in this area, what challenges and opportunities they see, and also if there's any ways that our churches can maybe partner together uh, for the greater good of the kingdom. And so I started reaching out. I already knew uh, the pastor over at South Granville uh, pretty well, and he and I had talked quite a bit, so I didn't schedule a special meeting with him. But I did uh, uh, schedule a meeting with Tom Vanderplug at Fellowship. Um, I met with Kerry Rogers at Alive Granville. Um, I met with Dale Fatma at Hope. Uh, I met with our old friend Brent Clatter at Harbor Life. uh, Bud Pratt at First Reformed. Ryan Wheeland at Granville UMC. Um, And I also attended a lunch meeting with the remnant of Pastor Tony's old uh, pastor lunch group that he used to host here um, as well. But probably the most interesting meeting I had was with Father Stephen over at St. Pius. Uh, we met for brunch one day at Anna's house on the Rivertown Parkway. Uh, it's kind of like the beginning of a joke, right? A Catholic priest and a reformed pastor walking to Anna 's house together. Um, anyway, at one point in our conversation, we started talking about preaching, and I was actually in the process of laying the groundwork for this series at the time, and so I mentioned that. And as it just so happened, Father Stephen had just finished a series of homilies on generosity over at St. Pius. And so I asked him how he had approached that, how he had approached that, what what he had kind of said in that series. And he said pretty much the same thing that I've been trying to communicate in this series, which is that our generosity as Christians is part of our thankful response to God's grace. In fact, he said it better than that. He actually had sort of a slogan of sorts for it. This is what he said, gospel giving is always grateful giving because we've encountered Christ's love. Gospel giving is always grateful giving, because we've encountered Christ's love. I asked him if I could steal that, and he gave me permission, which is funny, because we Protestants have pretty much been stealing from Catholics ever since the Reformation when it comes to, <laughs> it comes to our theology. Um, so he also gave me permission to steal what he said next, because he said he'd approach the whole series at St. Pius by using the acronym GPS, which he said stood for Giving, Praying, and Serving. Giving, praying, and serving. You see, Father Father Stephen said that the same way that a GPS system in our car or on our watch or on our phone uh, directs us where to go, he said those three things, giving, praying, and serving, direct our generosity. In fact, they direct our entire lives. But even though they're three separate things, he pointed out that they're not disconnected from each other. They're not compartmentalized. Instead, again, they're woven together. You need them all in relationship with each other. Generous giving is good, but you've got to be a generous prayer too, he said. And if you're generous with your prayers, that's great, but you've got to be generous with your time and service as well. And if you're generous with your time, way to go, but you still are called to give. That was Father Stephen's point. Giving, praying, and serving, they all interrelate. They all flow in and out of each other, and they all weave themselves together into the fabric of the Christian life. And there's more, too, right? Because it's not just those three things. It's not just giving, praying, and serving. Those are important, but there are other strands that we're called to weave into this fabric of our lives as Christian believers, too, right? For instance, there's love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit that are supposed to be produced and evidenced in our lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. There's our talents and abilities, there's forgiveness, there's hospitality and, and a willingness to open our homes and our families to others. There's empathy, understanding, acceptance, and there's even more than all that. There's that whole fabric there. And as generous people, what we are called to do is to do our best to weave all of that together in such a way that when we do bring our gifts to the altar, God is able to accept them as the evidence of genuine faith. That brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, one thing I don't want to do uh, in this message, and this is kind of a difficult needle to thread when it comes to this passage, but I don't wanna make it sound like if you've got sin in some part of your life, you can't give to the church or to God or to his kingdom because that's not the case. I mean, if it was, then none of us would ever be able to give anything, right? Myself included. Like I said earlier, Jesus is intentionally overstating the point here to make sure that we get the message that generosity alone doesn't give us a get out of jail free card when it comes to the other areas of our life as Christians. And so the point isn't if you're sinful, don't give until you get that sin figured out. Rather, the point is you are sinful, still give, but recognize your sin in other areas too. And yet here's the thing, right? We believe that there's grace for us don't we for all of our sins you see Jesus tells us here that if we get to the altar and we're ready to make our sacrifice but then we remember that someone has something against us we first need to go and be reconciled to that person and then we can come and make an acceptable sacrifice to God but the truth is that the only reason we're able to approach that altar make that sacrifice and see ourselves as acceptable to God in the first place is because somebody else has already done that for us. Somebody else has made a sacrifice on our behalf. Someone else has reconciled us to God. Someone else has already been to the altar and done what we couldn't so that we ourselves could approach it too. And that someone else was Jesus. As the Lamb of God, he was led to the altar. There he sacrificed himself for us. And it's because of that that we are reconciled both to each other as well as to God and made acceptable to him once more as his people. That is the generous grace that we have received from our God. And it's in response to that grace that we live generously towards others as well. And like we've talked about each week in this series, we're collecting ideas for how we might do that together. Um, Send them to the email address that we've set up for this series, generosity at org. Let's see what God might lead us to, to do together as his people. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, each week we come to this place of worship. We come to the altar. We are not worthy, we are not acceptable, neither is anything that we can offer to you. And yet, God, by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, you have forgiven us, you have washed our sins away and you have made us acceptable once again. Not only acceptable, but loved, cherished. Thank you for your grace. Continue to work in our hearts and our lives through your Holy Spirit so that we can accept that grace, internalize it, and then live it out generously in our relationship, not only with you, but our relationships with each other as well. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.